You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a talk by John Barry who's Professor of Green Political Economy at Queen's University Belfast. The event was part of UCD Humanities Institute's Rethinking Crises Forum and took place on the 10th of November 2023. Professor Barry's talk was entitled The Imagination, Hope and the Planetary Crisis. Wonderful to be back to my alma mater. I graduated here in UCD in 1990, so quite some time ago. And my word, how the place has changed beyond uh, recognition. So what I'm going to give you is less um, a kind of a PowerPoint presentation based upon a, a, a paper, but more um, a series of observations and maybe provocations in terms of what seems the hopelessness of the planetary crisis. I have a particular interest, which I won't talk about much, about the role of academia in a time of planetary crisis, uh, particularly in terms of myself and I'm sure other colleagues who teach on this topic in the room, uh, the high levels of climate anxiety amongst our, our students. Uh, I've never been trained in what do we do with that? How do I respond to often female students over the years who've said to me, thanks, John, for your course. I'm not going to have kids. And, you know, that's something I think we, we don't recognise enough as the emotional impact of uh, researching and teaching and obviously trying to work out solutions to, you know, the greatest existential uh, threat and opportunity, which I want to talk about as well. It's not just uh, a negative, uh, but it is something I think we in the academy need to start having a conversation with ourselves around how we uh, approach that. So I think, you know, I don't have to explain to an audience like this in terms of what we're, we're facing. And I think there's high levels of, of cognitive disavowal, which I don't know how many people, so it's not quite cognitive dissonance, where like a child you block out you recognise the reality of the seriousness of something, so the climate or ecological crisis, uh, but then you've got to go and make the dinner. You've got to go and pick up the kids and so on. So that it, it doesn't, it's not an omnipresent feature of our lives. And there is something about, um, what's that phrase from T.S. Eliot? Uh, people cannot bear too much reality. And it's also something we need to build into... Uh, talking and, and rolling up our sleeves in terms of how do we address the planetary crisis. There are many examples you could give of surveys, whether qualitative, this is a quantitative survey that was done in 2021, um, across interesting, not just rich countries, the kind of the G7, but the G20, which is a, a larger cohort of, of countries. Um, and I think our populations have been ill-served by the media, They've been ill-served by certainly our politicians and maybe if we want to be hard on ourselves by the academy in that there's low levels of awareness of how radically different the future will have to be if we are to have a realistic chance of staying within planetary boundaries, uh, particularly in terms of changes to you know, everything from heating, eating, transportation. You know, we are looking at the almost complete electrification of our lives uh, what about reducing energy and electricity consumption as part of that mix? I'm not saying that the transition is the replacement of a quantum of carbon energy with a similar or increased quantum of renewable energy. 
And I think we're still at the early stages of fully appreciating uh, the various horizons of change that are possible in the future. But as you'll see, and many of you, I hope, would agree, we cannot biofuel the Hummer. There is no plug-and-play version of greening business as usual, which sadly is the dominant narrative. And it's a comforting narrative. Elon's got this. Or God forbid, Leo and, and Michal have this. It's something that the government is going to come in with a solution. And there's a passivity, I think, in those either um, deferences to authority or indeed, as I'll talk about in a moment, deferences to technology. Uh, and particularly techno-optimism is, um, in my view, a very risky proposition for us to base our futures upon. So this is my uh, daily life, and it might be for some of you else. This used to be called the, the Kubler-Ross grieving cycle because it was developed by uh, Swiss psychologists to look at you know, things like death or you get a diagnosis of a terrible illness, but it's now called the change curve. And in a way, I think individually and collectively, many of us, uh, when, it look, when we look at things like the planetary and ecological crisis, um, go through this. I, I tend to spend a lot of time these days in the, in, the, in, the, in the shallows, in depression, and it is okay not to feel okay. I think it's an appropriate response to what we're facing. It only becomes maladaptive and malfunctional if you stay there constantly. Uh, but sadly, a lot of our politicians, certainly where I live in the north of the island, in the DUP, if this has been recorded, um, they're still in the denial stage completely. Uh, you know, our Jackie Healy Ray, only the man above can decide on the climate. And I think that is uh, um, a, a probably a more common view than we would like to, to think. And the reasons for that are partly warranted based on some research we've done in Northern Ireland um, and around wind farms, actually. But, you know, wind farms as a response to the climate crisis. And in our interviews, we found high levels of intelligent people. They weren't climate deniers. But they basically said, well, if it was really as serious as you're making it out, we wouldn't go to the normal planning process. It's an emergency. And, of course, people point to the pandemic as a lost opportunity to flex muscles, to develop uh, forms of cultural and community and indeed state uh, action that could prepare us now for the, uh, the emergency that is already uh, upon us. So it's that issue that people uh, may deny the reality of the climate and ecological crisis because, oh, the pandemic, there's nothing similar to what we went through in the pandemic, working from home, washing our hands, being restricted uh, in, in our movements and so on. And then if you add into this, most um, governance authorities, parliaments, uh, local authorities, the Dáil, Westminster Parliament, they've all declared climate and ecological emergencies. But WTF, question mark, what does it mean? You know, and that then adds to the cynicism within uh, citizens who can quite easily stay in the denial stage. And you can see this as a very strong misogynistic element to aspects of climate denial, particularly around focusing on the absolute toxic uh, patriarchal misogyny that Greta Thunberg has experienced online and so on. Uh, it seems to excite uh, a particular reaction amongst middle-aged white men, frankly, which I'm sure colleagues are looking at. What is it that they feel threatened in terms of their identity, their interest and so on by uh, climate action, particularly when it's been you know, spearheaded by somebody like Greta uh, Thunberg.
again, this infamous, famous quote, I think there's a one at the end of my talk from Ursula Le Guin, I think, which is probably more positive, but, you know, this is Frederick Jameson's, uh, you know, famous quote, the, the cultural critic. And sadly, it is uh, the reality of where most people are at. So it's easier to imagine colonising Mars, sorry, you can't see that bit, than imagine, you know, uh, moving beyond our capitalist system. So Elon Musk will get a lot of serious attention about batshit crazy ideas of colonising Mars. And yet, if somebody like me gets on to Joe Duffy to start talking about post-capitalism, I'm a woke, liberal, educated, tofu, sandal-wearing professor uh, and dismissed. You're going to say, what, what is it in our cultural moment now that this is given more credence, colonising Mars, than actually a serious discussion, an open discussion, that, you know what, maybe capitalism... And I'm using that as a, a way of containing carbon and the, and the desires and subjectivities and petrocultural imaginaries around, around that issue. Growth, consumerism, globalisation, hypermobility. And maybe in a way, and I'm really showing my age now, maybe we should see that this carbon-based, growth-based economy, which is now ecocidal, is a bit like Monty Python's dead parrot. It's dead. Let's give it a good burial thank it for its services, and move on to something else. And I think even to my more radical lefty friends, I think that's a better way of framing it than condemning the yields of capitalism straight out, is to say capitalism and carbon and consumerism have done some good things. They've created a lot of the infrastructure uh, and conditions which you can now use, but we do have to recognise a bit like... The stage of our economies now, and by our economies I mean in the global north, we're at a cancerous stage of growth. That's what cancer is. It's when a cell in the body has transgressed a safe threshold that is now uh, maladaptive, malfunctioning, dangerous for the organism. So it's not anti-growth. Growth is good up to a point. And growth has it, I don't tell people here, it's suffused with all sorts of positive connotations, development, maturation, uh, you know, a sense of development and so on. But we also have, have, have in mind that shadow side of growth, which is just thresholds beyond which then growth becomes cancerous or, or, or dangerous. And, and of course, remembering just simply biophysically, nothing living grows forever. As I tip my tummy, that took a bit of a battering over COVID and so on. That, you know, growth is something that reaches a point of stasis or homeostasis and then it's a steady state. Uh, from there, and I think that's what we need to start figuring out: is how do we move from a growth-based economy to one that's based around steady state and a shift from quantity to quality, meaningful free time as opposed to consumption, three-day working week, universal basic services, all of which I'd argue have functional reasons, not just normative reasons, to support them now. But again, in a way, to go to this mythic dimension, we tend to think that we don't live in mythic societies. Uh, but I do think we, we do. We have a, um, a picky a techno-optimistic uh, techno myth. I think this quote from Kennedy is quite useful in terms of the opposite of, of the lie is not necessarily the truth. It's the, it's the myth, that comforting myth that requires no particular um, thinking. And then we have more comfort blankets, as I call them. Net zero carbon, which is basically like buying environmental indulgences, it's a kind of burn-now-pay-later strategy. And they're always net zero by 2050. So sufficiently far away, 
what well, kind of close, uh, but it's about you know balancing, you know. And there's a wonderful satirical video of imagine a similar market for infidelity. So there's a scene in this. If you've seen it online, it's very funny. Where a guy sits down with his partner and says, "I've got something to tell you. Uh, I've been uh, uh, unfaithful to you." And of course, she loses the head. He says, "But it's okay. I have paid through this new system of infidelity offsetting." There was a guy in South America who was going to have an affair and I paid some money and he didn't. So we're net zero infidelity. Now, it's a lot more complex than that, but in a way, I think uh, we need to start uh, seriously questioning these dominant policy narratives in particular uh, around what I see as greening business as usual and kicking the can uh, down the road. And this other one's a favourite of mine. Gas, natural gas has a bridging fuel and as you'll see, I'm quite fond of kind of provocative analogies. You know, that's the heroin that we need to get off from, oil and coal in particular, because they're, they're more damaging to the climate system. But gas is like the methadone. And then we get to the nice soft spot of renewable um, energy. And again, it's all these strategies of, of de- delay. And I actually think we're at a stage now where our biggest challenge is not climate denial, it's climate delay. So it's not an outright denial or... or, or um, Rejection of the reality of the climate and ecological crisis, but you know uh, these delay tactics, I think, are becoming ever more prevalent. And particularly as a post-growth economist, I'd have to say this: these narratives of decoupling, circular economy, uh, and so on. There is no empirical evidence that we can decouple an ever-growing capitalist economy from the resource pollution and climate impacts. And just if you do a, a quick kind of calculation in your head. Functionally, a capitalist economy has to grow by at least 3% a year just to stay healthy and function. It's like a bicycle. It goes and grows or collapses. That's it. That's the only, it has no reverse. Capitalism has no reverse and it has no steady state. But at a 3% per annum growth rate, that means after two decades, the economy has massively increased by about six times in size. So just at that modest growth rate, you see how on a compound basis it quickly uh, ratchets up. So the reality is there is no way of decoupling, there is no way of biofueling the Hummer. The problem is the Hummer, not necessarily the fuel that goes into it. And this, I think, is our dominant cultural and policy. This is St. Augustine, our modern version, make me sustainable and low carbon, but not just yet. It's almost the equivalent of coming upon a fire as a firefighter and you say, listen, hold on there now. Let it burn a bit brighter until we see what we're doing. And we are colluding in this, often through our silence or by the comforting narrative that if it was as serious as these scientists are making now, the government would act. The government aren't, aren't acting, therefore it can't be all that serious. Or if it is, they have it in hand in terms of a solution. And I do think, you know, and it's great to be in a humanities setting because I think, you know, the importance of narrative stories and myths are underplayed as if, it, as if they're, you know, added extras to, to the human experience and serious analytical academic work has to do with policy and social movements. And yes, they are important, but actually we're narrative beings. You know, you could explain all of what I'm talking about here as, a, as a, an example of storied resonance. You know, we tell stories about ourselves. That's how we make meaning uh, of, of the world. And that also lends itself to, to myths. 
And this is Tim Jackson, who's a very prominent post-growth uh, economist, in terms of we have this myth of economic growth. I mean, I did provocatively consider, but I got a bad reaction last time I used this image, of, of a, a picture of an Irish flag, the trickler, and I put 12.5% in, in the white bit in the middle. And the reason being, that's the corporation tax rate. And it's almost as if this has now become part of Irish neoliberal identity um, in terms of this myth. This is how we, uh, we make our way in the world in the 21st century as Irish people. And to me, this is no different than the myth of cornucopia, the horn of, of plenty, or our modern version in terms of um, our groaning shopping um, centres. And it's amazing that even architecturally, you can see the values of a culture by what is its tallest buildings. There used to be cathedrals and mosques and so on. Ours, shopping centres, in a way of giving uh, you know, a spatial sense or an architectural sense to our, our values. And I do think this techno-optimism is essentially a modern version of Prometheanism. And there's lots of issues in here, particularly in terms of the Enlightenment, uh, industrialism. Uh, I think also there's an element of, of masculinity uh, involved in here as well. But it is. If you read the, you know, the Promethean myths, you know, the Titan who steals fire from the gods, and it's a kind of a, a marker of, of technological uh, ingenuity uh, and the uh, exuberance, if you like, of humanity to uh, take what's godlike and use it here on, on Earth. And it's also this sense, particularly in technology, and that's why I find it endlessly fascinating and by turns frustrating when I speak to my engineering and technology colleagues, just look at me blankly and I say, well, why do you want to do that? Can you not go and ask people whether or not we need this new thing that you're talking about? And it's almost like, you know, that, I think it was apparently Einstein when he heard about the atomic bomb being dropped or maybe before it was being dropped, it was when it was ready and up and iron like, you know, because it's on our minds now. If you haven't seen the movie, it's a really good film. But apparently Einstein said, you know, scientists were too busy figuring out how to do it. They didn't stop to figure whether they should do it. And, that, and there's a way in which technological innovation and development outstrips our moral, never mind governance capacities, to be able to uh, contain it. Um, and I think we're at that stage now with some technologies, whereas AI whether it's biotechnology, some in, in the life sciences in terms of can we cope? You know, is our ethical range sufficient to be able to accommodate uh, potentially the impacts of these technological innovation? And every student should read Wollstone Craft's book. And, and usually the, the, the subtitle of the book is left out. But also people forget Frankenstein was the scientist. Frankenstein was not the monster. And of this relationship between, you know, the creator and that which is created, the reason why the monster turns murderous and villainous is not because it, that was its disposition, it was because it was rejected by its creator. And that's why, you know, you know your Bruno Latour, he has a wonderful phrase, love our monsters, in terms of can we find ways of accommodating uh, these technological developments in, in an appropriate way. But a second myth is Achilles' lance. Everybody knows... Um, about Achilles, but forget about the fact that he, when he was dipped into the Styx, the river, he was held by his heel. That was his only uh, injury you could do. But also that he had a, a spear that could heal the wounds it inflicts. And I think this is our modern myth, that we think, yes, technology is bad, 
capitalism is bad, picking at the start, carbon. But you know what? We'll go and grow and then we provide more resources and capital and then we can clean up afterwards. To me, that's, the, that's our modern version of this Achilles lance, that the very thing that's causing environmental destruction, what I would say is carbon-based economic growth and the capitalism, that same system then, we can create carbon markets, we can use technological innovation to actually uh, clean and heal the wounds it creates. And this is where all this offsetting, I think if you dig behind the carbon offsetting, the net zero, this is what's going on. And it's largely but not completely a technological story of progress and indeed salvationism. There's a real kind of tech bro uh, element to, uh, to some of this uh, when you read deeply into it. So we can continue indefinitely and if you're Elon Musk you can even continue on other planets. You know, it's this idea that, well, just because humanity uh, was born and evolved on this planet doesn't mean that we have to stay here. There's this kind of sense in which, kind of almost like science fiction, Star Trek-like that you often get in, in some of these narratives. So just to begin to uh, finish up in terms of, you know, give you enough time for, for questions, I do think, and this is where the importance of storytelling, narrative, imagination, I mean, just looking at even the, 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 the paintings, of finding new ways of engaging people on this, and particularly around playfulness and pleasure. Nobody in the world, as far as I know, ever rioted for austerity. And too often the green movement, of which I'm a, a member, has been like the teetotaler at the party. Don't be drinking, you can't be eating meat, you can't be flying. There's this kind of negative hectoring element which is not very attractive, even if you're scientifically correct. In terms of engaging people, pleasure, sensuality, fun. And it sounds a bit bizarre in the context of the planetary crisis, but I do think we have to start engaging with people more than just around this science-based narrative, we're in a jocker, as we would say in Dublin, and we need to do something. Yes, we are, but even as we engage in the recuperative, reparative work to deal with that, we have to be showing people we're creating a better world, that this is a different world, no doubt, but it is one in which pleasure, sensuality, fun, meaning and so on are still there. They're often uh, not foregrounded in this kind of science-based, technocratic way in which often the climate issue is presented. And that's why, if you haven't read Kim Stanley Robbins, it's rather a, a, a long book, but it's wonderful in terms of, uh, it, I don't know what it is, not a utopia, it's not a dystopia in a way, but it, it, you know, it's an imaginative um, projection of what it might be like in the future if things start going really badly wrong with things like geoengineering, which, of course, is a serious proposition. A lot of money is going into solar radiation management and so on. And what I think are batshit crazy ideas that basically all keep the current system going. Where's the research and social innovation of low-carbon and high human-flourishing ways of living? Where's our living labs to experiment on new ways where people can live work, play, that will reduce their ecological footprint but also maximise their well-being. We're not seeing that. We see a lot more of research. So if SFI is listening, Science Foundation Ireland, can you please start funding art, humanities and social sciences around, you know, showing people that you... Because for a lot of people, they can't, you can't be what you can't see. They, they kind of get the climate issue, but it's like, what, what, what's life going to be like? We want to have... If I was ever, ever to write a novel, it would be uh, uh, the equivalent of Solzhenitsyn's A Day in the Life of Ivan Denistovich. 
except mine would be a day in the life of somebody in 2100 in Ireland to try and sketch out what will it look like? What are we eating? What are we studying? You know, what are we doing? So I think as well as Robinson, you've got Ursula Gwynne, who's always the go-to person for positive eco-feminist in particular uh, models of, of the future. Uh, but also I could have included um, Aldous Huxley. You know, Huxley, you know, wrote uh, Brave New World uh, and so on, and that's a dystopia, but actually his, his last novel just before he died and uh, was published posthumously was called Island. And it's this wonderful, evocative, ecological utopia. And I think we need to have that good stuff because too often this space, if you stick with the intergovernmental panel on climate change and the science, you will quickly stay in that place of depression. We need to have these imaginative leaps about what it might be like in, in the future. And also, this bit at the bottom, I was just in Maynooth yesterday uh, launching uh, Patrick Bresnahan's new, new book, which is wonderful. You should get him here. I was saying to Anne uh, to come on and talk about it. But this is the Circus of Climate Horrors, which they put on campus as a way of engaging uh, in this issue. Um, we're trying to get started in Belfast, working with some local artists. Uh, I want a garden of cognitive dissonance in terms of, you know, provocative but fun ways of engaging uh, people and, you know, picking around the issue of the importance of storytelling. There's that quote from George Monbiot. And so I do think we have to start looking for the pleasure in the crisis, which sounds a bit bizarre, um, is that, you know, put the fun back into climate fundamentalism, if you want to put it that way. That we can find ways of acting, and I haven't uh, watched all of this Canadian scholar's work, um, and I do have a kind of a, an allergic reaction to TED Talks, I have to say, but anyway, I'll overcome that. But I do like the proposition of, you know, finding fun ways through, like, things like cycling can be pleasurable. You know, don't say, oh, you, it's to help the planet and it'll reduce your weight. Yeah, but it's fun. I love uh, when I'm driving by people stuck in their cars. <laughs> You're not just stuck in traffic, traffic, you are traffic. You know, and it's about like pre presenting those trickster, almost subversive pleasures. So you know that, you know, the idea of the acts of, uh, you know, kindness, random acts of kindness. Well, if we need to build into our climate activism those more subversive, playful, pleasurable forms of, um, you know, finding ways that you can have pleasure in also doing good. Because um, I do like Chardonnay. Uh, and I don't want to live in a world where we can't import Chardonnay from wherever it's best. And it's to present that. It's to say that this is a world in which we want to have those things that give life meaning and pleasure. It's not just about meeting our needs. It's about our desires as well. And so we want to present it as a... But we say, listen... We're going to have to change other things. It's about being honest with people. Maybe the stag party in New York, that's not going to be as possible in the future. But you know what? Staycations. There are other ways in which we can provide for meeting that particular need. And it's almost like to present, as I've always thought, that your image of a green, low-carbon, sustainable future is like getting a postcard from a wonderful seaside resort. And that's missing, largely, in our dominant narratives of the climate crisis. You know, it is, you know, almost like if you read Alistair Gray, the wonderful Scottish novelist in his book, Lanark, he has this wonderful phrase and he says, you know, 
maybe we should act as if we're in the early days of building a better society, already build in this sense of rejuvenation, or what Naomi Klein, one wonderful scholar activist, has said, our present um, purpose, or where we're at the moment, is we're in a dig and gig economy. And what she means by that is extractivist, you know, really interested to see the post-extractivist work going on here, this extractivist exploitative system. And the gig, of course, refers, and I hope there's nobody in the room, but there may be, whether it's academics or whether it's other workers who are precariously employed, short-term contracts. So that's the dig and gig economy. That's our current model, the kind of neoliberal Ireland PLC with the 12.5% in, in the middle. And what she says is what we need to move is the care and repair economy, caring for each other. And as a post-growth economist, I've always been curious, why is it the unpaid work of women doesn't add to GDP? Why is it, as one of the great dead white guys of mainstream economics or mainstream economics, like I call Samuelson, he said, when a man marries his maid, GDP goes down. The same work is still going on. It's just that now it's been done in the care economy. Who made that decision? Well, I can tell you. A bunch of white guys in the 1930s sat around the table and decided what was to be included in GDP and what was to be excluded. So the unpaid work of women, no, 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 that doesn't go in. Arm spending, oh yeah, fill your boots. That can add to the GDP. So in other words, GDP itself is an ideological construct. It's not some objective measurement of the economy. The GDP of who, for what, what's in it? GDP does not care if GDP increases because we've increased the sale of Bibles or porno mags. It's immoral when it comes to, to that sense. And I do think that's another mythic sense that we have this totemic idea of GDP growth and we will sacrifice public services, our young people having to emigrate to keep some level of GDP going. It is like a totemic uh, altar upon which we have sacrificed so much does your heart sing when you're listening to RTE News and they say GDP has gone up by 1.2%? Most of us haven't a baldy clue what GDP means. But we've been taught and socialised, and in my view, ideologically indoctrinated, to think GDP is good. It's kind of bad when it's not going. Why can we not consider job-rich non-GDP you know, that maybe GDP is like a remainder after economic activity that fulfills our needs happens. So even though I'm a post-growth economist, I'm not anti-growth. It's only when you foreground growth as the objective, so many other things are, are missed. And that, in, in my view, is a form of ideological and mythic thinking. And this is part of my project as a scholar activist now is in terms of, you know, where are the songs? Every great social movement has, has and by songs it must mean sort of cultural representations of what it is that um, we need to do. And there's no contradiction that the XOR, God loves our cotton socks, and I've engaged in Extinction Rebellion activism, you know, tell the truth is one of their, their, of their three um, points that they want. And, but there's no contradiction between doing that and also then presenting the, the transition you're trying to promote in a non-sacrificial, a more attractive, pleasurable, desiring manner than it currently has been up until now. And also, people say, oh, it's about losing. But then we fail to forget, what are we losing now? We're all maxed out. And part of the 
certainly the, the reflecting on our own professional conditions as academics, we're the, self, we're the most self-exploiting workforce in the world. You know, yes, the horrible neoliberal academic capitalist managerialism, league tables and all that crap that we have to deal with um, is there. But actually, we have to look at ourselves and say, well, what about slow scholarship? What about even small acts of resistance and rebellion by telling your head of school, no, I'm not going to fly to conferences anymore. I want to take the ferry. But that means my work allocation model will have to change to reflect that because it's going to take more time. And there's also a privilege attached to that form of slow scholarship that professors can do it. Whereas if you're a young scholar and you haven't got a, you know, the time to do that. So it is about recognising, even within our own uh, workplaces, where are the opportunities and who should be leading? And I certainly think that at this time, it's professors. Senior members of the profession should be asking these questions, not younger uh, colleagues for whom are much more vulnerable positions. So... I leave it there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.